Hello and welcome to Altamar, in a special edition with Hopkins at Home. Today, COVID, diplomacy, and populism is what we're going to talk about in our bi-weekly podcast, where we navigate world politics from a global perspective. And in partnership with the Johns Hopkins University, we're featuring Bill Moss, Executive Director of the International Vaccine Access Center and a professor there. And we'll talk to Dr. Moss about the international efforts of vaccine distribution, the institutions behind them, the great gaps and inequalities, and the tricky politics behind this global effort to curb the pandemic. I mean, we have talked about COVID, we've breathed COVID, we've lived COVID now for the last year and a half, Mooney. And, you know, in a way, what else is there to talk about? But there's so much yet to talk about because half the world is still under all types of COVID emergencies. So true to our mission, we're going to take a geopolitical angle and specifically concentrate on three topics, COVAX, the global vaccine initiative, the power play of COVID diplomacy, and the fate of populists around the world who've tried to profit politically from COVID. So, Peter, it's become abundantly clear that the worldwide vaccination effort has only deepened the fault lines between rich and poor countries in a devastating, tragic way. And while the U.S. is living a sort of open summer with record low death and hospitalization rates, many developing countries, including my own Colombia, are living a hellish public health crisis. And fortunately, while nobody could anticipate the scope or nature of the virus, a global collaboration began very early on with the goal of uniting leaders around a solution to quickly manufacture and distribute vaccines to impoverished regions. The initiative was parented by the World Health Organization, coordinated by Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, and CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness, and UNICEF. And it kicked into gear a little slowly, aiming to provide participating countries, regardless of income, equal access to vaccines. So COVAX, like I said, has taken a while to kick in, but is now saving lives by funding, securing vaccine doses to the poorest corners of the world and channeling donations from subsidizing countries. There have been millions of doses distributed almost exclusively to 120 developing countries. And COVAX works with both governments and manufacturers, making efforts to overcome obstacles like vaccine hesitation trade restrictions, lockdowns, and of course, increasingly political conflict. And the politics behind this effort focuses on a simple question is how many vaccines can rich countries share and to whom? And in current terms, it's a very popular term, vaccine diplomacy. So while COVAC currently underplays donor identity, a lot of politics is taking place inside. And the leader of this has been China because they quickly, quickly took the lead by exporting their own Sinovac and Sinopharm vaccines. And Russia followed suit quickly with the Cold War named Sputnik vaccine. And both of these countries began early on to distribute these vaccines to Latin America and Africa. The Biden administration, on the other hand, is only now sending vaccines to the developing world. And U.S. vaccines may work better than the Chinese or Russian vaccines. But the global impression, Mooney, is that the U.S. has come in late to the aid of impoverished and disease-stricken countries, and China and Russia were there earlier and that they care more. 
Absolutely. And it still will take some time to evaluate how this vaccine diplomacy will strengthen the footprint and the influence of the global powerhouses, in particular, as you mentioned, China and Russia. In Latin America, where most recent U.S. donations have landed, that they may have served to offset the very early leverage gained by China and Russia with vaccines used many times as currency for securing political agreements. So the virus has created a new arena in the struggle for world influence, but it's still out of control, putting pressure on the U.S. to step up, but also on the developed world, including Africa, I mean, Europe and G7 countries to provide a common response. But what's interesting here is that the geopolitical influence is not the only geopolitical matter that's really important about COVID because, you know, we have covered on all tomorrow over the last, I don't know, four years, countless episodes about this endless rise in populism around the world, not only in developing world, but also in Europe and certainly in the United States. Well, the last year and a half could provide an interesting swing of the pendulum to another directions. And, you know, here's the question we want to ask our guests with, is it possible that we are going to see now COVID actually be responsible for the failure of populism. Because if you look at leaders like Donald Trump and his hydrochloroquine, Jair Bolsonaro with his little, little flu in Brazil and the Philippines, Duterte and his wild card containment, they're responsible now for some of the most widespread outbreaks. And if you add Modi and Erdogan as leaders that have been severely damaged by the pandemic, this whole thing about medical populism based on pitching the public against the establishment and characterizing itself by denying science, poor testing and tracking, arbitrary lockdowns and inefficient responses. Well, this is now the playbook of choice of non-democratic leaders. And although in the beginning, some countries where moderates were in power, they had trouble curbing the spread of the disease. If you look at France and Italy, for example, and leaders with autocrats like Poland and Hungary did well, but this has now turned completely because for the most part, in poorly governed countries, the result has been high death and disease rates, failing health systems and increasing public outrage. It's too early to measure the long-term impact on populism, but early signals point to the pandemic accelerating a populist fatigue. And it's becoming very clear that good governance saves lives and bad politics increases death. Mooney, is that a ray of sunshine on this dark, dark cloud that we've been living through? Even if it is, the price has been way too high. I'd like to turn it now to Thea for a bit of a different viewpoint on what is happening in the developing world with vaccines. This is Thea Stick, where we take a look at youth and social justice issues. And I'm Thea Ivanovich. So a year and a half into the COVID-19 pandemic, close to half the world's students are still affected by partial or full school closures, and over 100 million children will fall below the minimum proficiency level in reading as a result of the health crisis. And this is especially true in the Southern Hemisphere, where in places like Peru, for example, nearly 10 million children are affected by strict school closures. But even in high-income countries like Belgium, the Netherlands, Switzerland, and the UK, early research has indicated both learning losses and increases in inequality. And that's what I want to take a look at today. 
So experts note that the learning losses arising from COVID-19 are likely to have a long-term compounding negative effect on many children's future well-being. And these learning losses could translate into less access to higher education, lower labor market participation, and lower future earnings. The lack of internet at home, lack of resources, lack of parent support at home, or uncertainty around food and housing aren't new problems. They just became very, very apparent when all of a sudden teachers had a front row seat to see inside these children's homes through Zoom or the fact that they were not at school. So as of May 2021, schools in 26 countries were completely closed countrywide. For millions of students, school closures will not be a temporary interference with their education, but it will be the abrupt end of it. Children have become working, got married, become parents, or grown disillusioned with education, concluded that they can't catch up, or they age out of free compulsory education guaranteed under certain countries' laws. So my question is, will governments get back on track with commitments they made back in 2015 through the UN Sustainability Development Goals to guarantee all children receive inclusive quality primary and secondary education by 2030? Let me know what you think by tweeting at Altamar Podcast. So to help us break all this down, it is time to introduce our guest, Dr. William Moss. Bill is the executive director of the International Vaccine Access Center at Johns Hopkins University, as well as a professor in the departments of epidemiology, international health, and molecular biology and immunology. He's deputy director at the Malaria Institute there, and he's also a pediatrician with a subspecialty in infectious disease, has worked in Ethiopia, Kenya, South Africa, Zambia, Zimbabwe, and India, among other countries a true authority. He's been a strong voice on the COVID virus and its international implications. Welcome to Altamar, Bill. Mooney and Peter, thank you very much for having me. Let's get right into the questions. Last year, many people were hopeful when the HMO announced the COVAX initiative. Nobody at the time expected the pandemic to be so widespread and deadly. How do you rate the initiative's successes and shortcomings, and what needs to change in the short term? Yes, overall, this was a really important initiative. and But I think that it, it has not lived up to its goals. So if we think about this, COVAX, as you said, Mooney, was established very early in April 2020, before we had any notion of when vaccines would become available and how safe and effective they would be. So it was an attempt to really achieve fair and equitable distribution of vaccines, but recognizing that there would be national interests that would guide the distribution of vaccines early on. Let's just pause for a moment and and kind of think about where we are right now and what is needed. It's quite remarkable that we have globally about 18 vaccines that have been either approved or authorized for use. Here in the United States, we have three highly safe and effective vaccines. 
Um, and this is really a remarkable uh, achievement. I, I don't think anyone ex really expected that we would have this soon highly safe and effective vaccines. But there is gross inequity in the distribution of these vaccines. Just to do a back of the envelope calculation, let's say there are 8 billion people in the world, everyone needs two doses, and we want to achieve about 70% coverage. That would, be a, that would be a good coverage to achieve globally. That means we need slightly more than 11 billion doses. To date, COVAX has shipped just over 100 million doses. There have been 3.6 billion doses delivered globally, but these have largely gone to high-income countries. So COVAX still has enormous challenges to overcome in trying to meet their goal. Their original goal was to have 2 billion doses delivered by the end of 2021. They wanted to achieve at least 20% coverage of vulnerable and high-risk populations throughout the world, but have fallen far short of meeting that goal. This is in part or large part driven just by the supply. What is really hindered the, the global distribution of vaccines through COVAX is in large part the, the surge of the pandemic in India that really impacted the ability of the Serum Institute of India to deliver the AstraZeneca vaccine, which COVAX had really banked on as being the major provider of vaccine. So we still have a lot more to do in order to get vaccines to the, to the people of the world. COVAX is a wonderful mechanism, but it's fallen far short in achieving its goal. Bill, if you had to rank countries as far as which countries have done the best job in this uh, international uh, kind of initiative and which have done uh, the poorest job, what, what would you say? Yes, well, I think, you know, the United States, the European Union, Japan, the UK have contributed to COVAX, but I think they need to do far more. So, for example, the United States initially pledged 20 million doses, then 80 million doses, now 500 million doses, with about 200 million doses of those to be delivered by the end of this year and another 300 million in, in 2022. But that still falls far short of what is needed for the global vaccine equity. Take a step back and just explain to us how COVAX works, because I think people read about it, but what is COVAX? Who runs COVAX? How does it make decisions? Yes. Yeah, so COVAX is a coalition, as we said, that was founded in April 2020 uh, when no one really knew when vaccines would become available. But early on, it was recognized that there was going to need to be a mechanism in order to get fair and equitable distribution of vaccines. So COVAX is led by a coalition of Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, 
the World Health Organization, CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, and really supported by UNICEF, which is a major player in getting vaccines uh, to children of the world. But it's really based on donations, in part, to support and fund vaccines for low and middle income countries. So in short, there are two parts of COVAX. And and maybe, Peter, I should say just a step back, COVAX is really a part. It's one of the three pillars, the term pillar is used, in what is called the ACT Accelerator. And ACT is Access to COVID-19 Tools Accelerator. And the goal here is to have equitable and fair access to vaccines, diagnostic tests, and treatments for COVID-19. So COVAX is one part of this ACT Accelerator focused on vaccines. And the way COVAX is set up is in kind of two parts, two components. One is for what are called self-financing countries or or economies. These are countries that have the capacity to set up bilateral arrangements with vaccine manufacturers. And we can talk more about this because a lot of the high-income countries have obviously set up bilateral arrangements with the vaccine manufacturers and have purchased uh, a large proportion of the vaccines that will be manufactured in 2021. And under this arrangement for these self-financing countries, they can either have a commitment where they basically get an insurance policy uh, at a pre-specified price for COVID-19 vaccines. They also have an optional choice where they can kind of opt in or out, but again, they have this insurance policy to get access to vaccines. So that's one part of COVAX for these self-financing countries. Now, for low and middle income countries that don't have the financial resources to set up bilateral uh, agreements with vaccine manufacturers or aren't self-financing, they participate in an advanced market commitment that COVAX has set up. And this is the portion of COVAX that's really dependent on external donations for their funding to purchase vaccines for low and middle income countries. And these uh, donors include other countries like the United States or the European Union, but also philanthropic organizations that contribute to these. And the way this works is that under the COVAX umbrella, they're able to negotiate pricing uh, with certain vaccine manufacturers on behalf of these low and middle income countries, and then ensure this equitable distribution across these countries uh, for vaccines. So let me ask a doctor a more geopolitical and diplomatic question. We've seen Russia and China have been armed with their respective vaccines, use vaccine diplomacy so effectively. And meanwhile, you know, Mooney and I have talked about how the United States and Europe tackling all of their domestic crises were actually late to reach out to the developing world. How have you seen the long-term consequences of this delay play out? 
Well, certainly there are consequences on the public health side with the delayed kind of uh, assistance that uh, some of the high income countries have provided. You know, and I think this is particularly problematic because many of the high income countries have excess vaccine doses than what they really need for their population. So there is a public health aspect to this that I think is really, in in a sense, tragic because of what we've seen, particularly with the widespread transmission and disease and death caused by the Delta variant, delays in getting vaccines to much of the world has, has really been tragic. We're now over for a million deaths, and, and I'm certain this that this is an undercount globally. But there are the, as you're highlighting, Peter, you know, the political or geopolitical side of this. Now, let me just give some examples. You know, China, as we know, have has invested heavily over the past uh, decade or two in many sub-Saharan African countries in building roads and building facilities, hospitals. There's a trade-off there because many minerals and resources go to China to help their industrial base. And so I see, at least in sub-Saharan Africa, where a lot of my work is, is, and where I see the impact of the Chinese investments, I see this as kind of an extension of that. China has particularly provided the Sinopharm vaccine. We can talk more about that. That's an inactivated COVID vaccine to many countries within sub-Saharan Africa. And I think in many ways, this is a good thing. We, We can talk, Peter, about the relative protective efficacy of these different vaccines. But being able to provide COVID-19 vaccines to countries in Africa is is really important. The Russians, as you pointed out, have their Sputnik V vaccine that they have also made available to many countries around the world, particularly in the Eastern European region and South America. And the United States is late to the table in being able to provide vaccines to many of these countries. What could be the long-term consequences of delaying this much, and how much has this self-interested vaccine diplomacy actually helped to curb the pandemic? Yes, I mean, I think this is self-interested you know, in, in terms of getting vaccines uh, to the world. There's obviously a humanitarian component to that, but there's also self-interest. There's public health self-interest. As long as the, va- the, the virus sorry, is circulating in parts of the world, um, particularly with unchecked transmission, we get variants. But there are also the, you know, potentially the, the political implications in terms of influence on, on very con- various countries. And I'm sure the countries in, in many countries in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, are very grateful uh, to have access to vaccines, particularly from China, but there's been some distribution of the Sputnik V vaccine as well. And let's talk a little bit about at home. The U.S. case is clear. Once the Biden administration seems to have set up the public health strategy, vaccines began to be distributed and the virus has begun to be controlled in the United States. 
how do we depoliticize this? I know this is something the president is talking about every day. I guess two questions, and and you know, I'll, I'll ask both for short answers to both. Which, how did they become political? And then the second one is, how do we depoliticize? Yes, I mean these are really ch- important but challenging questions, uh, Peter. And unfortunately, COVID-19 became politicized very early on. I think part of this had to do with the way former President Trump and the Trump administration dealed with, with many issues in terms of turning them into kind of political footballs. Um, It also occurred in the context of a highly polarized political climate in the United States. And we saw it right from the get-go in terms of acknowledging the extent and potential severity of COVID-19 and the pandemic in the United States, in terms of politicizing many of the public health measures, the basic public health measures, the mask wearing, the distancing, all of that became politicized uh, right away. And the vaccines story just kind of played into that. There's also a, a long history in the United States of vaccines being a politicized issue. Uh, This tension between public health and vaccine mandates or requirements, for example, and individual liberties is a tension that's always existed. I think the Biden administration has done a lot to try to depoliticize the issue, but I think these issues are so entrenched already in the United States that it's really hard to dig ourselves out of that hole. Well, and let's talk about depoliticizing also in terms of overseas. Mooney and I, as as you heard, we're talking about the correlation between the pandemic and politics in other countries. It almost seems that where leaders have approached these measures with disdain, COVID is now really completely rampant. If you think about uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil or Modi in India, and some of the most responsible ones have been able to generate a positive outcome. Do you you agree with that theory of how populism, the pandemic has, has, has come back to bite populist response? I think so. And I think where populist governments have really gone astray is in not being transparent, not telling the truth, and not following the scientific advice. And so when all of that is spun and turns into disinformation and disinformation about the pandemic itself, the extent of the transmission, the severity of disease, and the steps necessary to get on top of this pandemic, where where all of that is twisted for political purposes, that's where I think the populist governments have really taken their countries and their populations down a wrong path. And we've ended up in this very tragic situation with, uh, you know, massive numbers of cases and deaths. One of the other consequences, uh, Bill, is the as a result of the COVID lockdowns and the economic impact of COVID, is, there's been a global 
kind of outpouring of citizen unrest. Do you think COVID will change politics in the future and in particular the kind of the nature of protests around the world? I think it had a short-term impact, obviously, through the lockdowns and, and protests. I don't know that it's going to have a longer-term impact. In, in the history of pandemics, we tend to think when we're in the midst of it that we're going to make all these changes, whether it's political changes or public health changes. Um, but our our attention span, unfortunately, as individuals and as society is, is short term. And so I'm not sure we're going to see these longer term changes as a consequence of this pandemic. What I foresee once we get through this kind of acute phase and, and really are able to get vaccines out to the global population and get this under control is that this is a virus we're going to live with for decades. We're not going to be in this terrible pandemic stage, but it's a virus we will live in. And I think we ha will have a tendency to kind of go back to our routine ways of functioning, whether it's as individuals, as communities, societies, as political bodies. And so I'm not sure we're going to see this longer term impact as a consequence of the pandemic. So it seems like global immunization is very far away. What does life after COVID look like? And is it even is it even a possibility? Yes, I'm not sure we'll reach a, a world without COVID. I think COVID will be with us, but it will be managed much better than the way we have now. Basically, this is a virus that entered a completely susceptible population, caused severe disease in vulnerable individuals, whether those are older individuals or people with underlying diseases, people with poor access to health care. But as those populations either get vaccinated or they're going to get infected, I think we'll see a lower level of, of virus transmission. Now, that still may be, you know, one year, two years away where we enter that kind of post-pandemic period, but we're going to continue to have to battle this virus at, at a low level. Um, but I think slowly we'll kind of get back to where we were, and maybe this will become, you know, another somewhat routine kind of respiratory virus that tends to be more severe in, in older individual and adults, and hopefully we'll have those populations protected through vaccination or natural infection. Peter, there's a phrase that stuck in my head that you said, which was accelerating populist fatigue. Is that even possible? Could there be a, a silver lining to COVID? I'm struck with the idea that really bad government governance has created bad results and a lot of citizen uh, unrest and, and dissatisfaction. I, I believe that there's there might be a silver lining to all of this horrible tragedy. You know, when you and I were talking about what we were going to say on this podcast, I loved that idea. But after listening to Bill, I love that idea less because I just feel like the anger and resentment that much of the world is going to have against the rich industrialized world for not having moved fast enough is going to be so profound 
and so deep that I just don't know if that's going to be a way to get rid of populism. I think maybe perhaps quite the opposite. Is it a way that in which populism will become ingrained and much more difficult and complicated and building, feeding on a resentment of the industrialized world. That's all we have time for today. So thank you very much for listening. You can listen to Altamar wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. See you next time.